Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Neil Wariski, a partner in Milbank's Global Corporate Group. We live in an age of too much information, right? Even if you go beyond the question of what's the intelligible principle for the rule maker, the question is who, who should be the rule maker? Right? I mean, should there be one rule maker or should it be that these decisions are left at the board level? Let's get to it. Institutional investors control an estimated 80% of the market capital of U.S. publicly listed companies and exert considerable influence over them. Less well-known is how many of these institutional investors rely on outside advisors for guidance on how to vote their shares. Today, the two largest proxy advisory firms, Institutional Shareholder Services, or ISS, and Glass-Lewis, control nearly all the market even more concentrated in their influence on equity voting than are the big three credit rating agencies, S&P, Moody's, and Fitch, for debt markets. ISS and Glass-Lewis each recently announced their proxy voting guidelines for the 2021 proxy season, covering board composition, compensation, and environmental, social, and governance, or ESG matters, among other things. Public company directors ignore ISS or Glass-Lewis guidelines at their peril. The influence of the proxy advisors runs deep, and wide. Many asset managers vote their shares in lockstep with these guidelines. The largest fund families refer to them when setting their own stewardship policies. All of which begs the question, who watches the watchers? So thank you for taking the time to get together today to do this. No, we're happy to. Yeah, so today's question is this. Does concentrating power over so many U.S. companies in just a few hands actually lead to better corporate governance? You think about it from a legal process standpoint, and it's so insane, right, how it, how this all came about. There's huge, like, massive power that, uh, that nobody wanted to exercise in the first place. Nobody wanted to deal with it. And then the SEC says, hey, somebody's going to deal with it. And, uh, and they, everyone's still sort of trying to do it on the cheap and you end up with this set of rules that are really crazy and somebody and you know the proxy advisors there to to fill the power vacuum yeah how did you get so fascinated personally by the topic was it because the companies were asking questions about it or i was really annoyed at one point when i was representing a client and just keep kept thinking like why the hell can't we have a staggered board right and a staggered board is just such a if you want to if you want to have a long-term strategy for your company, a staggered board is, is hugely important because you can then, you know, you can make plans longer than for the next voting cycle, right? Which is what happens to some of these companies when they get become under attack from an activist, where they they blow out some money one way or another, which is what the activists a lot of times want. As interesting, just breaking it down, and this idea of having a staggered board or a you know, a classified board where, say, one third of the directors are are reelected every year, and then as opposed to you know, declassifying it, where one hundred percent of the board is turns over or could turn over each year. So I started looking at the staggered boards, and the staggered boards, of course, leads you to the proxy advisors and to you know the shareholder rights project at Harvard, where they just declassified like a hundred boards, and you know, there's a pretty big data set as to what that did. As a result, and you know, some people think it costs you know a hundred billion dollars for these companies in lost value. Yeah, it differed by market cap quite a bit. In other words, for 
for S&P 500 companies, most of them, I you know, for a long time have been declassified. But for the smaller cap public companies, there's been a trend that's really been, you know, more marked from 50-50 now to, you know, considerably more being declassified as well. Yeah. Two two factors. That one, the the SRP went after the big ones first. The big ones have the staff developed to be more sensitive to the proxy advisors' recommendations. A lot of the smaller companies are newer, and you can get away with a staggered board for some transition period when you IPO if you've got a sunset in there. Yeah. Well, anyway, so let's back, let's back up. I want us to go back to two thousand three, or you know, when the SEC kind of makes its change. The, the original sin, the original sin that gives rise to proxy advisors and the you know, kind of the, the the big thumb on the scale that they have behind the scenes with fund managers. It was interesting, right? I think the SEC at that point was just very frustrated by, you know, they they were dealing with Enron and WorldCom and fallout from all these, you know, really bad corporate scandals where the governance was just kind of you know amazing. It was amazing how bad it was, right? You look back and think, oh my god. Of course, it happens every so often. It'll probably happen again, but then they thought, well, somebody's going to do something about this. And you know, if you've got if you're a regulator and you're trying to do something, I guess it would make sense to say, well, look, you know, you institutional shareholders, you have all this voting power, you have all this control of the company. You're not being good corporate stewards, right? You're just letting people do whatever the heck they want, and you know, you're not paying attention, and you know, you're just following the Wall Street rule and just voting with your feet if you don't like the company, but you're, you're letting companies run. Which sounds fine, but there's, there's some really huge problems with it. You know, one of which is, of course, that the way Delaware law works and Delaware law controls most of these is that the directors run the companies, right? The directors are the ones who tell shareholders this is what you should vote on, this is what you shouldn't vote on. There's just a few things that Delaware law requires a vote on. But if you if you try and shift everything and say, okay, shareholders, now you have to make these decisions and you have to, you know, have a policy on, it was crazy that, that, you know, when you look back at the the release and it says, you know, you have to have policies on anti-takeover defenses. Why they were so big on that, I don't know, but they were poison pills and staggered boards and uh, you have to have uh, rules on, say, on pay and executive, well, I wouldn't say on pay at that point, but executive comp. And you have to have rules on corporate and social responsibility, which is what we now call ESG, right? So it was this very broad portfolio that said, look, you guys are responsible for all this. Like all you guys who've been just investing and, you know, buying when you think the price is good and, and selling when you when you, you want, that, that, you know, now you, now you have a responsibility to set up a policy on all the, this. It's a very broad scope, like a hugely broad scope of, uh, of matters and right there's these guys who are you know sitting in their office collecting money and investing it and now they've got to run companies right or or at least make the rules for how people run companies and i want i want to pause on that though for a second just to put it in, into context so you know there's management that's doing the day to day but they're under the direction and supervision of a board of directors that board of directors is elected by shareholders but basically under delaware law and most state corporate laws the board of directors is charged with the fiduciary duty to manage the company. And by pushing it onto shareholders, you're really pushing on to fund managers because this classic idea that a shareholder sitting in front of the screen, figuring out what to, how to vote a proxy, like that's an illusion because 70% of the public shares are actually controlled by fund managers who are advising or, or investing on behalf of institutional investors like pension funds and insurance companies and 401k plans and 
uh, and they vote. They'll vote over 90% of the time on a proxy, which is something that the board is putting in front of shareholders to, you know, to decide on. Whereas, you know, individual investors, you and me who may buy a share of stock, collectively will only own 30% of the U.S. market and public companies and will only vote less than 30% of the time. So these fund managers have a huge either opportunity or responsibility, depending on your point of view, to influence companies if they're voting on more things and if they have a duty to give some thought to how they vote. Right. Yeah. And so the, that's exactly right. And if you, if you look at the numbers you just went through, it's about a seven to one you know, institutional vote to uh, retail vote. So it's, I mean, it's hugely influential how, how these people, how these, how these funds vote. So what's a fund manager do in response to that? Well, first thing they thought, you know, they're sitting there, you know, happily collecting money and investing it. And they thought, oh, geez, now we have to figure out how to manage all these companies. And they thought, man, that's going to cost me a lot of money uh, to figure out how to run, you know, thousands of companies. <laughs> what should I do about that? And uh, what the SEC, their their next sin will put on them was that they they said, okay, well, this might be complicated. So you can rely on proxy advisors. Uh, right now, there's two proxy advisors, two major proxy advisors that probably have 97% or so of the of the market. It's ISS and Glass-Lewis. And instead of, you know, looking at this as, uh, you know, the funds didn't look at this and say, oh, gosh, this is a great way to uh, increase value of my portfolio companies. They said, this is going to increase my expenses. This is going to be really expensive. It's going to make me uncompetitive with my my peers, the other fund complexes. So I'm going to squeeze this expense into the smallest possible box, right? Which is good, you know, capitalist behavior. This is like, let's, let's take this expense and make it really small. And the way to do that was to hire these proxy advisors because they could rely on the proxy advisors pursue, until very recently pursuant to uh, an SEC uh, rule. So the proxy advisors are thinking, okay, great. I'm now in charge of making these policies. Now, of course, the proxy advisors have no economic interest in the companies at which the voting is taking place. And they have clients who are cost sensitive, right? The funds want a small expense, they don't want a big expense. So they start competing and they, frankly, the rules they make, how they make them and how they're staffed, there's the process by which uh, they they go about making the rules seems to me particularly in the one thing I was most interested in staggered boards is just crazily outdated. They haven't changed the you know for the last ten years the same. They're referring to the same articles, the same academic articles that have been in my mind debunked, but at least certainly very heavily challenged. And and so they 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 don't seem to really. I don't want to say they don't care because they certainly have policies and some some things have done have been I think beneficial in terms of board composition. And and let me let me ask a question about that though too because if you think about it there's a distinction to be made between what the goals for corporate governance could or should be. So for example, one could make the argument if you want to increase diversity on a board it's easier to do that when boards are reelected in full every year, you know, and declassified. That's you know, easier to do than if they have staggered terms. It, it, and you could take a pro or, pro or con on, on something like that. You could take a pro or con on whether some of these corporate defenses are maybe better only for short-term in, you know, traders and not good for long-term investors and not good for the long-term interests of a company. Uh, but an executive comp, you could look at similar arguments back and forth. 
that's different, though, from this, I think, real fundamental flaw in who's making the decision, right? Is it a proxy advisor who's not accountable to anybody or a fund manager who doesn't have any incentive to really pay attention to individual proxy votes? And what does that do to the quality of all companies and all boards uh, kind of across the, uh, and therefore in the markets? Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple of really big issues in there. I think that one of them is, you know, if you're going to have some central authority uh, making these decisions, what's their, you know, if you know, speak in administrative law terms, what's their intelligible principle, right? What's their, what's their objective? Is their objective to protect long-term investors, short-term investors, all stakeholders? You know, these are, you know, big debates that that people are having all the time at the board level, you know, who's who are we representing, right? And I think the Delaware law answers, you know, even though nobody, you wouldn't know it to look at how some people act, but the, the Delaware uh, rule is you, know, you should act in the long-term interest of shareholders. And, you know, maybe that should change, but that's, that is what the rule is uh, in Delaware. But th- these rules are clearly not developed uh, with that in mind. And it's really kind of a hodgepodge. So, but even if you go beyond the question of, What's the intelligible principle for the rule maker? The question is, who, who should be the rule maker? Right? I mean, should there be one rule maker or should it be that these decisions are left at the board level? I mean, I tend to believe, yeah, you should leave them at the board level because I don't really trust anybody to make such a broad scope of rules in an intelligent way. Companies are so different in so many different ways, you need a situationally appropriate rule for every company. And, and that's what the boards are there for. And if you want to improve the quality of the boards and have, I, I'm, I'm, I think that's great. You know, I think some of the things they did on, you know, uh, you know, board diversity and term limits and, and all that sort of thing, that probably helped improve the quality of boards. So how would you combat this kind of this centralized decision-making by you know, this duopoly of proxy advisor firms that are that are not super transparent, that are not accountable, at least not clear to anybody in particular. And they may have conflicts of interest, right? Because ISS also consults for corporations and that may or may not influence the advice that it's giving to fund managers to vote for, on, on proxies. How do you put the genie back in the bottle? Do you go back to where we were before the 2003, you know, SEC pronouncements and the no action, you know, letters that they came up with afterwards? Do you do you do you take away from fund managers some of the duties they have now to thoughtfully vote proxies? Where how do you unwind this? As I said, so there, there's some value in some of the things that they've done, right? I mean, there's certainly value in having benchmarks in terms of, you know, as I said, term limits, the, just board composition, board quality, all that stuff. I think is there a lot of that stuff is pretty valuable. But when they start making general rules for you know, no company should have a staggered board or this is this is the correct policy on climate change or this is the correct policy on animal welfare. They, they really have started taking it too far. And it's really hard to the way that the proxy advisors have sort of run into the vacuum that in, institutional investors left behind when they decided they really didn't want to figure out how to vote at each company. They the proxy advisors have very effectively used that power in particular, the power to elect directors by recommending for or against the election of directors in order to to push a really astonishingly broad range of policies on ESG and, and all sorts of other topics, which is 
is just kind of out of control, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, let's figure out how we how we as shareholders get the best board. Let's let's just find. Let's do everything we can to make sure the nominating committee is is really active and has great uh, people on it, and is you know thinks about how to attract the best people and and you know function well internally. All that sort of stuff. Fine. That that makes sense because that's part of the traditional role of shareholders picking a good board. But when it starts uh, to to be a situation where if you do something, if the board decides, I you know, I need to put a poison pill in for two years because I've got this very aggressive activist who's out there. That will earn you a, a, a negative recommendation as a, as a director. And that just shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't be able to have this super broad scope that has nothing to do with the quality of the board, rather it's the decisions that the board makes that the shareholders disagree with. And if the shareholders disagree for a Longer term, that's fine. It's gone too far. Everything is a pendulum. The pendulum has gone way too far to the side of, you know, back in 2003 when the SEC was frustrated clearly with institutional investors not having any responsibility to where we are now, where the institutional investors are starting to take a little responsibility themselves, but still relying very heavily on, on proxy advisors. Mm-hmm. If you look at the SEC, then you look and and you, I know Elad Roisman, who you know, commissioner who used to be a Bill Bank attorney uh, many years ago, uh, spoken on this topic. Uh, Gary Gensler is Biden's pick to come in and um, become chairman of the SEC. Uh, do you see in the next you know year or two some kind of uh, possibility that these rules could be revised in a way that would help both boards and and shareholders? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really see any possibility. The uh, Roisman has been fighting a good fight for a while, and uh, Dan Gallagher was before him. And uh, I, I honestly think, if anything happens, it'll probably go the wrong way. Right? It will be the the government deciding, okay, well, we should make these rules, or we should have a bigger role in making these rules, rather than devolving the responsibility back onto the boards, like down to the most knowledgeable level, it will just go up even further, you know, past the board, past the retail investors, past the institutional investors, past the proxy advisors, all the way up to, you know, the government. That would be the worst thing. Which leads to that one size fits all problem kind of on steroids. Yeah. And who knows how those rules would come out or how stable they'd be. So how does that, how does that bump up against the idea though, that you know, it's not a federal question. It's a state law question, a corporate law question of what is the fiduciary responsibility of a director of the board of a public company or any company? Well, it's interesting. The solution I like best, which, again, I have low expectations of it ever coming in, is the idea that you require the uh, the proxy advisors to have fiduciary duties to their, their clients. Now, how that would ever work i don't know because it's how those who those shareholders are underneath is always a mystery and whether they you know that should be long term or short term or that at least would give you it would give you some some hope that that if they were held to a you know duty of care duty of loyalty type standard that the proxy advisors would start acting you know more responsibly and again you sort of have the you know your your state versus federal issue it's it's still they would still have this broad scope 
but they maybe get sued for it more uh, uh, and they get sued on it somewhat more possibly. None of this will work though. I mean, honestly, none of it's going to work. It was just a, it's, it's the federal government telling private holders to use their state law rights in a particular manner, which just, it's just not, uh, <laughs> it's just not how the, 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 the whole paradigm was set up. Cause it's, it's, it's interesting to be thinking about it so much of the time, the, and even if you look at the academic work on this and the relationship between this asymmetric information between, you know, management and boards, boards and investors, and of course, investors then aggregate their investments through fund managers or others who you would think there have for have better access to information. You know, the flip side of duty is disclosure and disclosure is meant to drive intelligent investment decisions and protect investors. A lot of that comes into play when people decide what to buy, but not how to manage what they've purchased and monitor it or even when to sell it. How much could disclosure rules affect positive change in this direction instead of focusing on the, the, um, the voting part we've talked about? I, I, I suspect you must have some securities law background if you think that's a, a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, no, I'll back up. I, I, I think actually, I'm not sure it is a good answer because disclosure assumes somebody cares, right? Somebody, that somebody actually is interested in that information and could make an intelligent decision based on it and therefore would make an intelligent decision based on it. And there's not a lot of evidence in some of these areas where the proxy advisors are most active that increased disclosure has actually been helpful in the past, nor that there's anybody really paying attention that cares to to vote a certain way, uh, even for a particular company, let alone en masse across, you know, across the portfolio. It, 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 that's super interesting because at, at, in 2003, when the release came out, one of the things the funds were saying is like, nobody has ever asked me ever what my voting policies are. And still today, if you're a mutual fund investor, you don't know how they're voting. I have no idea how any of my my things are voting. The only exception to that are ESG funds. And that's also interesting because ESG funds are, are quite a large business at this point. It's like maybe, I can't remember the statistics, but they're, they're much, much bigger than you would think. Yeah, the SEC did a but the SEC, SEC did a paper actually on that not, not too long ago, looking at fir, uh, funds that called themselves some variety of ESG or green or SDG or socially responsible, whatever whatever it was, and had a very hard time correlating that with the types of investments they were actually making in many cases. Yeah, and that's just on the investment side. Never mind the voting side, right? So there are some that you know will disclose that they have. They vote in accordance with best practice or something, but nobody knows what the hell that means. And frankly, what I think is best practices is not what maybe you think is best practices. So it, it's it's not real, right? What the, you know, the, the disclosure on that. And even if it were, the, the thought that all these investors are actually going to pay attention to it and figure it out and decide, you know, this is a good thing or that's a good thing. It's just never going to work. There's too, you can't have everybody vote on everything. It just doesn't, you know, you will not get a sensible result. I don't know. It, it's very hard to, uh, to, to see disclosure helping in that regard because the, the, it's just, you can't ask everybody, every retail investor who holds an index fund what they think the best voting policy is because they're not going to know. So, Neil, let me get your take on a couple of recent federal developments. 
uh, at the SEC under Chairman Clayton just a few months ago, they amended their rules under the Securities Exchange Act so that proxy advisors are uh, subject to conflicts of interest disclosures and other conditions in order to use the exemptions from some of the current filing and notice requirements. Uh, they also confirmed that proxy voting advice is a solicitation under the Exchange Act and subject to the anti-fraud rules. Uh, the other is the Labor Department, which uh, just in December issued its own rule, took effect on January 15th, limiting ERISA pension plan fiduciary reliance on proxy advisory firms, but really probably mainly targeting uh, ESG recommendations. Uh, what's your take? I mean, it's interesting that the, you know, the federal government is starting to, there, there was some suggestion from the, the Clayton SEC that, the, that, that funds would not have to vote on everything, which I don't know if that's going to survive uh, the, the Biden SEC or the Gensler SEC, whoever it is. So you have a situation where the SEC is clearly it's on their radar a little bit. And then the Scalia Labor Department of Labor, of course, had their regulations that came out just before the end of the year, but basically said, if you are a fiduciary, you can't invest in ESG funds I mean, unless unless except as a tiebreaker. But you have to look just at pecuniary factors, which are effectively, uh, you know, anything that affects value. And they don't think ESG necessarily affects value. I don't think that the Labor Department's narrow view that ESG is somehow totally divorced from shareholder value survives, you know, given current concerns from investors um, and the new administration alike about the risks associated with climate change and sustainability and so forth. I think clearly companies are impacted and access to capital will reflect that. The questions to me are what information about a company's ESG policies are relevant to future cash flow and to risk and resilience and who decides? You know, we live in an age of too much information, right? And you can get all this information, but you can't really process it. Even the funds, right, who, who have billions of dollars and trillions of dollars of investments and may have a very large stake in XYZ company, when they're voting, the portfolio manager, the guy who actually knows what the company is, <laughs> you know, what it does, and 10% of the time he's involved in voting. That's, that's not much. You can disclose everything. You can tell everybody in the world this is this is you know this is we're ESG and we do exactly this, that, and the other thing. But uh, it's kind of information overload. At a certain point, for me, it's it's really just: do you have a good board, or do you not have a good board? And there's other people like the ESG funds, even right. It's interesting because they have ESG funds and they all talk about their voting and, and all this stuff. But they did a survey of the people who are invested in this. And the main thing they actually care about is climate change by a huge number, right? That's really what people care about. It's like, is this going to, you know, is this company doing, you know, going to be a positive or negative effectively in, in, in the, the climate change battle? And if, and you could just have that, you could just say, okay, people, these are the climate change, or you could say labor, are these companies, do these companies treat their workers fairly? The, you know, you could have funds that are kind of single focus, and that would be interesting, right? Because then people, you know, the Wall, you know, the Wall Street rule would be you know, individual investors saying, "Okay, I'm only going to invest in in companies that treat their employees fairly, or I'm only going to invest in companies that are responsible about the environment, or whatever it is." And you could could make it if you make the decision that simple. I think you could get meaningful input from individual investors. But if not, you're going to have the problem of ISS and Glass-Lewis making all the rules for everybody. 
to me, I, I think it's probably economically wasteful to have a set of rules imposed on operating entities that may or may not make sense for it. Yeah. Well, Neil, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. I love talking about this stuff. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com. <laughs>